Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are covering Excalibur 56, Things That Go Shriek in the Night, in which a housewarming becomes a horror show and then gets really weird, even by Excalibur standards. Excalibur number 56 was originally published in November 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler and Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Terry on editing. We've got millions of years stored away in that computer bank we call our minds. We have got trillions of dormant genes in us, our whole evolutionary past. Perhaps I've tapped into that. He may be on to something that is beyond our own comprehension. Now, because I believe him, I want this thing stopped. <laughs> the hell was that? You okay? If you love me, if you love me, Eddie, defy it! Altered States. Welcome back to the party, which isn't much of a party, though I suppose it maybe depends what you're into, maybe. Um, we're into talking about weird stuff on this podcast, and since we've got lots of that going on, we're eager to get to talking about this one. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I talk about gender and sexuality and pop culture anywhere anyone will have me, pretty much. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in this capacity, I can confirm that Mr. Wagner tried to turn down his role in this issue before being informed that he's a fictional character and does not get to choose um but also he kind of gets off easy compared to everybody else but don't tell him i said that i am wandering into today's weirdness with my usual teammates mav if you'd like to refresh your credentials hi my name is christopher maverick but you can call me mav and i am an adjunct instructor at like three different universities in in western pa and the reason i'm pointing that out is because on my other show for this week's episode as we record i actually said eastern pa because i forgot where i live <laughs> and, I, and i didn't notice it till like i was editing that episode and i'm like i don't live in eastern pa but i'm not re-recording that now so it just says on that on the episode that went out it says that, that i work at three different universities in eastern pa and i'm like that's hundreds of miles from here i'm very tired it's also very cold and you guys are going to make fun of me for not understanding like um 
American like temperatures again. <laughs> but it but it, it went from this week in the last couple of days, it's gone from 90 degrees where I live to 40 today for Canadians and other people who don't live in America and don't the understand planet. Fahrenheit. Yes, most of the planet who doesn't understand <laughs> our morally correct measurement system that only we use. And in, in Celsius, it's like that's like going from about 32 or 33 degrees to about four and a half in two days. Yeah. <laughs> it just like it was really warm and people were like in shorts. I was using the hot tub and now it's freezing today. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I was listening to the weather forecast and it was like, it's one degree and snowing in Ottawa on today, April 27th. And I was like, what? It's April 27th. Get it together, weather. <laughs> uh, thank you for that, Mav. Andrew, please reacquaint us with your resume. Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. John's University and the project lead for the Claremont Run, a big micro-publishing social media thing. Um, I'm with Mav. I had COVID last week. My breath is still not there. I just got my grades in last night and I somehow have four deadlines in the next two weeks. Uh, I'm real, real tired, but I'm really excited to talk about this issue because this issue terrified me as a kid. Uh, mm. The depiction of Jamie oh. and his ability to warp reality. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think this is going to be a, a really fun palate cleanser, let's say. I'm pretty sure we're going to get pretty into this conversation, especially with our perfectly placed guest. So here to help us untangle the twisted threads of today's warped realities is a returning guest who we're so very lucky to have with us. We are overjoyed to welcome back to the pod, Dr. Samantha Langsdale. Welcome back, Sam. Thank you so much. I'm I'm really, really excited, especially when I looked at the issue that we'll be talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, I just geeked out all about Megan last time, and I am totally primed to do it again. <laughs> so I am here for this. Yeah, we got some Megan content to talk about this, in this issue for sure. So I'll give you a little bio again, just to remind listeners of your credentials, because it's been a while since we've seen you. So Dr. Samantha Langsdale is a scholar of feminist philosophy, contemporary critical theory, and cultural studies. She's a past research fellow at Berkeley and lecturer at the University of North Texas. Her research employs intersectional feminist philosophies to analyze the politics around representations of race, gender, and sexuality in various media forms and in public discourse. Her book projects include the academic anthology Monstrous Women in Comics, co-edited with Elizabeth Ray Cootie, a topic which we discussed with Sam during her previous appearance, and we will talk about more today, I'm sure. She is also the proud owner of a shiny new contract with University of Texas Press for a book titled From the Margins into the Gutters, Searching for Feminist Superheroes. Congratulations on the book contract, Sam. I'm Thank you. so excited I'm so to read excited. it. Mm. Yeah, Andrew and I are going to be book publishing buddies. I'm really pleased about it. <laughs> We're making a club. We're going to take over UT Press, all of us. Yeah, I'm it was far. kind of a long time coming, actually, which has been a, a really interesting learning curve for me as someone who's never published my own book before. This has been quite a process, but I'm finally on the right track. So it's just a matter of finishing it, <laughs> which is quite frightening. <laughs> <laughs> Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about it, about what you'll be talking about there? Because we usually do comics origin stories in this section, but we've already talked to you about that a little bit back in our episode on Excalibur number nine. I get confused when it's been that long ago, but I'm sure it was Excalibur number nine. Um, so yeah, what have you what have you been up to since we last chatted with you? What are some of the topics that this book is going to cover? So this book is focused on contemporary female-led superhero comics from Marvel. And 
part of that is just because it's impossible to write a book about everything. As Mav was explaining to us earlier about his thesis was, most university presses aren't going to give you a contract for 400 pages. <laughs> so I had to kind of make choices. For me, I'm a big Marvel fan, but also um, a lot of the comics that I've been researching and presenting on in the last six to seven years um, have really presented a lot of fascinating themes, which I think are discernibly feminist. So I've selected five books to talk about that I use, as as you suggested, I use feminist philosophies as sort of interpretive lenses to read. And they're all representative of either new or kind of ongoing pressing feminist issues. So I'm going to be covering Jean Grey comics. I, I'm using that kind of broadly, but really I'm still focusing on the dark Phoenix saga and then short run that was produced in 2018 that was just five issues, which is supposed to be, it's, it's it's called Resurrection, and it's supposed to be a sort Ooh. of retelling of the end mm-hmm. of the Dark yeah. Phoenix saga. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of looking to that to determine whether or not it fixes any of the problems that I think exist in the original. And again, from a feminist perspective, and I'm interested specifically in like how female power is dealt with because that I think is one of the primary sort of sticking points in the original Claremont text um, whether or not Marvel is capable of dealing with female power in ways that aren't derogatory then my second chapter looks at Dennis Hopeless as the writer his run of Spider-Woman that's the one where she gets pregnant and becomes a mother yeah and so of course there I'm interested in sort of reproductive freedom um, and then monstrous maternity how that's sort of been a an ongoing theme for Marvel and whether or not that gets adjusted appropriately in this book. I think it does to some extent. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, I then have a chapter on Gabby Rivera's run of America featuring America Chavez and that is looking specifically at the kind of again politics around queer female representation around Latinx people around borders around migration and U.S. xenophobia. Then the last two chapters are more even more contemporary. Um, Eve Ewing was the writer on Ironheart and so I'm looking at that through sort of black feminist philosophy, Afrofuturism, and ethics as they were established by Hannah Arendt, and then The Unstoppable Wasp. And that kind of is about unpacking superhero teams and how they're sort of androcentric by nature. The Wasp sort of changes that, but then it's also looking at queer feminist science and how that can kind of open up, you know, again, what we expect superheroes to do and how they can actually have real positive impact um, for girls and women. Oh, I love that. I want to read all of those chapters so badly, all the stuff that I'm interested in. And I think often of this moment from Unstoppable Wasp where, oh God, who is the Unstoppable Wasp character? What is her name? Because it's been so long. Nadia. Yeah. And Nadia is like geeking out about meeting Janet and going through Janet's whole resume of like, oh, you know, you're a scientist. You like invented the Avengers. You did all of this stuff. And then Janet kind of gets a bit emotional is like no one remembers those things about me yeah and <laughs> yeah like, yeah I mean oh, it was so like it really reminded me so much of like the first issue of Captain Marvel like Kelly Sue DeConnick's Captain Marvel mm-hmm. where it has that ending of you know with the letter from her mentor um, Helen Cobb saying you know and we'll be the stars that we were meant to be because it is this kind of using continuity but using it in a way to assert a neglected feminist history you know Janet Van Dyne is this amazing feminist character if you choose to read her that way 
And she doesn't just have to be like defined by the slap, which is how a lot of people tend to define her. And yeah, that little moment, I go back to that so much as it doesn't take a lot to like make you feel included sometimes in these spaces, but just do that subtle reframing of canon to be like, hey, actually, Janet Van Dyne is a really revolutionary character. Why don't we do that? Just like that really meant a lot to me. Yes, absolutely. Kind of the point, right? I mean, this is where I got the title of the book. You know, I, I don't mean to be flippant about the very good and substantive critiques of sort of mainstream popular culture as it's influenced by market forces, right? Like, we can't read stuff into this because it's just for sales. Like, that's true, but also, um, I think there's been so much good scholarship about how meaning is made in the margins. Even though it's marginalized, and we want to be clear about the reasons it's marginalized, there's still really kind of interesting and I I would say even profound stuff that can be found there. And so that's sort of the point that I'm trying to to make. And uh, the example I'm trying to follow, I I will just say that, you know, lots of people have been influential, like Stuart Hall and Bell Hooks were obviously making these points for decades in terms of cultural studies, but in terms of even pop culture or comic studies, um, I think like Andre Carrington's book was really helpful for me in thinking this way, Um, how we, we know who our quote unquote enemies are, but if all we ever do is talk about why that's the case, then we're neglecting everything else that is happening that and, and this huge side of our own creativity and our own imagination and the possibilities that can come when we ignite those things so yeah I mean I think that 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 moment is hugely important and it's just a it's a couple of panels but I mean the impact obviously is is so much bigger than that yeah like I, I teared up a little bit reading it like that's like <laughs> how sure. powerful like a moment like that is you're just like oh my goodness like my gaze in terms of admiring these women and wanting to admire them gets acknowledged in a moment like that right and it's just it's very meaningful to get acknowledged when you're not expecting it and not used to getting acknowledged it reminded me what you're saying of a lot of the work that frederick louise aldama does as well in terms of sort of emphasizing the positive potential of kind of speaking from and working from the margins and you know doing a lot of good work in terms of being highly critical but also emphasizing in his work in particular like latinx creators have always been there latinx readers have always been there latinx characters have always been there we've always been doing this stuff and we can talk about some of the productive things that happen in these spaces of like intersecting meaning generation and not always just make sort of lists of problems you know because like a lot of sort of texts about representation in the superhero genre can become lists of problems and that is important we do need to identify the problems but sometimes making those lists of problems neglects the diversity of gazes present right like i mean i remember being at a conference like years and years and years ago and a man was doing a presentation about Scarlet Witch and just sort of doing a list of all the ways that this character is sexist and I just was so uncomfortable listening to it and then I got my courage up because I was all younger back then so I had to get my courage up (laughs) to ask like during the question period I was like well I think a lot of women also find Wanda Maximoff a very feminist and inspiring character is that not possible for this character as well and he was just like I don't know (laughs) I was like okay (laughs) well there's a lot of reasons why like women might find her story identifiable despite the the sexism that it's laced with and it's just that doesn't get talked about if all we're doing is doing lists of problems right yeah Exactly. And I think, you know, when you do that, it you are inadvertently re-marginalizing yeah, exactly. those marginalized voices, right? By continually insisting that, oh, like, these people have been shoved aside. <laughs> well, yes, 
So why not, you know, make some space? All right. So let's move to our issue summary, and then we will get to your first impressions of this issue, Sam, because I'm very anxious to hear those. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We would never put you through any of the things that happen in this comic, that's for sure. But as always, let's start today's revenge with a plot summary. Excalibur number 55 opens with Saturnine, former dictator of Earth 794, who has finally discarded her Courtney Ross disguise to embrace being her Nazi self. Kitty watches with her face phased through a painting as Nigel Frobisher gets jealous of Brian, who is currently brainwashed into being Saturnine's servant. Saturnine puts Nigel in his place. As Kitty phases back into the wall to regroup, she collapses, still suffering from vague but severe injuries in the wake of Jamie's attack in the last issue. Inside the wall, she spends some time reckoning with the revelation that Courtney was really Saturnine. As Saturnine's goons search for Kitty, we get some exposition and catch up with what's been going on since the last issue. Nigel is tricked into transforming into Vixen, and Jamie has warped the members of Excalibur and their guests, including Di Thomas and Amelia Witherspoon and Psylocke, into some very strange and disturbing shapes. Via Psychic Link, Betsy manages to reach Brian, who is naked in Saturnine's bed. Via Psychic Link, Brian and Betsy communicate missing details about Saturnine and Nigel taking over Vixen's gang. Suddenly, Jamie discovers the tete-a-tete and violently ends it. Betsy screams white kitty who ninjas some Saturnine goons and steals a uniform for herself. Meanwhile, Nigel Frobisher prepares to kill Brian, who is interrupted by Saturnine. He tells her he can replace Brian as her manservant and is about to shoot her with mind-controlling pellets to make it so. But Saturnine is never defenseless. She seduces Nigel, takes his knife, and stabs him. Back in the room controlled by Jamie, the guards encounter Kitty. More ninja-ing ensues. Kitty threatens to kill Jamie if he doesn't set things right. But she gets too close and Jamie manages to seize her cosmic strings. The horror is finally ended by Megan, who regains control of her shape-shifting and hits Jamie many times until he releases his hold on Excalibur and their guests. Saturnine orders Brian to kill Megan to stop her. He refuses. Psylocke finishes the fight with Jamie by thrusting a psychic knife into his brain. In a blaze of glory, Saturnine escapes with Jamie. Nine days later, at a church in Scotland, Alistair kneels by the grave of his sister, Alessand, and rants about the inquest. It decided his sister committed suicide and was rigged from the start. As Kitty comforts him, they are approached by Colonel Nick Fury, who confirms that Alessandro was framed and the information that was leaked was decades out of date. He gives Alistair data on the source of the leak, leaving it up to him to find out who framed his sister. We'll be going back to that plot in some future issues. But let's start with some first impressions. Um, I doubt this subplot with Alistair is going to be the bulk of our conversation today, so let's get right to it. Uh, Sam, encountering this issue for the first time, and I believe you read the previous one as well, what what do you want to talk about right off the bat? What stood out to you about this issue? So I will just say, like, in a general sense, it made me feel icky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so many things that I really had a hard time sort of with just I'll just say that I just had a hard time with I'm very glad that you took me off to read the issue before because it gave me the context that I really needed to know exactly how horrifying this was but I think like the kind of three main things that really stuck with me that I'm hoping we'll chat about in depth Kitty's reaction to finding out that she'd been deceived was really fascinating to me and I will admit to not knowing in depth her really relationship to Courtney but it seemed like a heartbreak um yeah like yeah. she had been deceived by a lover which I thought was really interesting yeah and yeah, she might have been okay uh-huh. <laughs> um the it's vague, scene but yes 
<laughs> okay, the scene where we find out what's happened to Brian after Saturday takes him, so he is laying naked in bed, I found really disturbing um, to me that looked like he had been raped. Almost and certainly. then the, <laughs> the shapes and things that everyone was contorted into because of Jamie. Megan in particular really fascinated me and like this whole idea of what their shapes indicate of Jamie's desires um, and that they are being described as like horribly deformed and disfigured. So like all of that, you know, obviously like lit up a bunch of, <laughs> yeah. a bunch of my buttons. Yeah, I want to talk about all of those things. <laughs> uh, the Brian thing, I believe one of my topics on the schedule was uh, the rape of Brian Braddock. So we are going to talk about that. Uh, we'll do a content warning on the episode for some of the discussions we're going to have today. But um, let's get some other first impressions from Andrew and Mab before we get into some specifics. Andrew, how are you feeling about this issue? You said already that it terrified you as a kid. I was revisiting it. Um, Weird. In the context of how we've been reading Excalibur on the podcast, I, I- I again find myself like intellectualizing now in a way that I didn't as a kid um so it, it, that unsettling has now become like really interpretive in a way that makes me think I'm dead inside as a person um <laughs> but it, it's really interesting uh and I, I still feel like Davis is pushing towards resolution and simplification in a way I don't like uh I, I feel that Alison didn't get enough of a moment in reflecting on her death particularly for an issue where turns out everybody's not dead that you thought were dead oh except Alison she's very much dead yeah uh, like, like that I didn't like very much but then as mentioned there's a moment with Megan that I love still in this issue and, and I think it um is sort of her ultimate empowerment scene fulfilling that promise that we got in like Excalibur 3 when she starts to match the juggernaut so there, there's a lot here there's like a ton of stuff here um that that ickiness remains and as I said I can intellectualize it away a little bit and I see what Davis is trying to do like the way he's trying to, to lean into the body horror uh, but the way it becomes entangled with sexual violence and misogyny remains uncomfortable to me yeah I think where I'm gonna keep coming back to in a lot of my observations about the issue is when is the discomfort productive and when is it not productive and exactly. I think that that's a really subjective question which is yeah. why it's so difficult to talk about right uh Mav how are you feeling about the issue don't like it <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Is, and, and I knew this was gonna happen when we recorded last week's episode right because I defended the murder of Alassane. And I said, if you go back to that episode, I said, with some caveats that I'm going to talk about next issue. This is next issue. My problem with Alassane is, has always been, I think she is a potential character much more than a character. She is cool in concept, but I've gone back and looked at all of her main appearances in this and her, it's like four in the X-Men. It's not that many. She doesn't ever actually get to do anything she's got like a lot of cool potential that's mostly in my head and like she's almost always sort of a plot means so like i understand why she's okay well we'll just use her for this plot i get that you asked the question when is it productive when davis is trying to do you know is he trying to make a statement with body horror versus rape versus sexual assault versus there's the question is when does that trauma become productive and a lot of times when i'm doing literary analysis i will will defend it because I think we live in a horrible world and I think power of literature and I mean literature broadly film art 
you know, the power of text is to explore these difficult concepts. I don't think it's productive because I don't think he, I think this is a miss for him. I don't think he was quite prepared to deal with the heaviness of the topics he's doing. And it's, and again, I'm an Alan Davis fan, but I'm being fair here. This is very hand wavy in lots of ways that are uncomfortable, not because, well, yes, also because talking about rape is uncomfortable. It should be, right? But talking about rape can be uncomfortable and productive. Here it feels like it's uncomfortable and productive because of what Andrew was saying with the, you know, I'm going to put my critical hat on. I think I have to put too much of a critical hat on to make this work. And I think if I don't do that, if I if I read this when I'm, I guess I'm like 18 at this point, maybe 19. If I, but if I read this, then it feels like a, this is just a weird story that I don't really like. Not like a, oh my God, did they just rape one of the main characters? Which is the story, the the context I want to have. Like, um, so like I've I've written a story. I have a published article where I talk about people talk about the rape of Barbara Gordon and Killing Joke, and everyone always ignores that Jim Gordon gets raped in that story. It, like right. people completely, it's very clear, it's very intentional, it's there, and people miss it. And I think that that's an important conversation to have because even though I know it's out of vogue, Killing Joke is a better story. It's a very better treatment of that issue of that issue that topic than this is. It's just hard to talk about. This is glossy. It's like a, oh, well, you know, Saturnine raped the guy because she's evil. Okay, moving on. And that I don't like. So that's, it, it becomes uncomfortable. And I think there's a lot of missteps here. I think this will be an interesting episode because I think it takes work as us doing scholars to make that conversation happen as opposed to the book giving it to us. Yeah, I mean, let's get into some of those specifics because it's, yeah, definitely... <laughs> It sort of depends how we read it, but there's a lot yes. of sexualized violence in this issue. Uh, I would say, Ton. yes, definitely Brian gets raped. And we also get Kitty dealing with implications of sexualized abuse. And I, I kind of want to start with that one because Sam already brought it up and it's the beginning of the issue. And so, yeah, let's let's start with that. I think I'm, I'm going to use my host privilege and, and talk about it first. That I actually really liked this scene. You know, like I'm going to have gripes about this issue as well. But so the scene where Kitty is sort of struggling in the aftermath of Jamie doing whatever he did to her in the previous issue and realizing that Courtney was really Saturnine and having the flashback to the birthday date that they had back in Excalibur 24. And it made me think back to our conversation in that episode and how I found that conversation uncomfortable in some ways, the sort of tightrope that we had to walk in terms of this being a positive queer awakening for Kitty and yet the uh, levels of sort of deception and abuse and the mm -hmm. loss of agency that that inscribes in her and I think we had a really productive conversation with Stephanie Bird about it I love that episode mm -hmm. but this actually made me feel better about it in some ways and hmm. I'll be specific about why so I think the degree to which Kitty is upset both addresses how deeply abusive what Satter Courtney did but it also right. addresses how important it was for Kitty she is upset as she is because she really valued the relationship she thought she had with Courtney because she viewed it okay. as like a deeply important relationship, you know, and in terms of emphasizing how like upset she is, you know, we have the physical effects that she's suffering from whatever Jamie did to her sort of manifesting in sort of nausea and confusion and like she's passing out, which can also definitely be read as a trauma response. And the visualization of that and the description of that, I think is very effective. It's sort of, it's a bit allegorical since it's not directly linked to trauma 
trauma. It's like, oh, Jamie did this physical thing to me. But in this context, it very much reads the psychological as well. And I think, again, sort of having the flashback to some of the positive moments with Courtney and seeing how much that interaction did mean to Kitty, but then seeing the depth of the betrayal as well. I was surprised by how effective it was to me in terms of walking that tightrope. You know, this was super important to Kitty, but the betrayal was really, really serious. And we see how disturbing the betrayal is with Davis has been careful to include the stand-in Nazi symbolism, you know, as part of the flashback, which is, again, a whole other level of disturbingness to, to that seduction of Satter Courtney, um, of Kitty. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I I'm want to hear everybody else's thoughts about it because that's sort of my opening salvo on it. But I'll come to you about it first, Sam, because you already mentioned it. And I know that you don't necessarily have the full context of that previous relationship, but um, well, all right, maybe it's worth refreshing for our readers anyway. So basically, Saturnine was disguised as Courtney Ross, who was somebody that is Brian's former girlfriend who got killed by Saturnine and Saturnine takes her place. So Saturn, Courtney started basically grooming Kitty. In Excalibur number 24, it's Kitty's birthday, her 15th birthday. So Saturn, Courtney comes into her room with a birthday cake and there's a very sexual scene which Davis explicitly says he drew as a lesbian seduction in which Kitty licks icing off of Satter Courtney's finger they go to Paris together they dance the night away Satter Courtney gives her a car there's a lot of queer coding in that story I mean not even coding it's like subtext that's no, almost text yeah <laughs> like it's as explicit as like we're gonna get for queer Kitty basically up until last year in a code approved comic in the 90s it was yeah. it was the most you were I mean it it was unquestionably supposed to to be a romantic seduction like it, it's very clear that that's where they're going with it so that's some of the context for this which i'm just throwing all at you sam but like in terms of how you read this scene i mean you said that you felt those romantic connotations kind of coming across so how did you read this did you think this was like an instance of productive discomfort or not I mean, I, I think that, to be honest, like in terms of my first reading and what I'm kind of prepared to talk about, I can't say that I thought too much about Saturnine being a Nazi stand-in. And, and it's not to say that I didn't notice and I'm aware, you know, like even in the issue that I got to chat with y'all about previously I knew this was the lay of the land, but this isn't something that, that entered my thinking when I had my kind of immediate reaction of like, wow, this is a breakup. And I do think that that makes it more complicated. And I think in all honesty, it's not that that would have to be a separate conversation. I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's a different aspect of the conversation. I think there's lots of ways that relationships can be toxic and and maybe that, as we were saying before, that's a nice shorthand <laughs> for, for kind of demonstrating how the people that we can become attracted to um, and love are not always good people and not always good people for us. And, and that's obviously true when you get tangled up with Nazis. Um, but in terms of the, the page where Kitty is uh, kind of in the wall recess and she's crumpling, like she's literally crumpling into a, a ball by the end of the page. I mean, I just think it's... Stunning. I love I absolutely love the art and I think the coloring is really effective. The fact that she is in blue, right? She's in shades of blue, so that you really don't have any question about how she's feeling here. Yes, it's supposed to be dark, but I think that's also a very sort of purposeful choice. And, and as you said, I think her physical reaction it almost doesn't matter that Jamie 
hit her with something, right? This is absolutely what's possible, especially when someone feels as though they've been betrayed, they've made a mistake. Um, I think we understand this as being a visceral bodily reaction, being sort of just unable to process comes from the fact that the whole basis for these interactions was physical, corporeal, bodily. And so of course, she's going to feel it that way. One of the things that I found really fascinating, the sort of the largest panel on the page, it's the sort of bottom left corner, and it has three different versions of Courtney Saturnine and and Kitty's sort of in the background, but in the middle, right? And so Mm -hmm. you can understand that she's envisioning, she's having, as you said, these flashbacks of different versions of Courtney. And it made me think of the ways that contemporary queer women talk about the different types of lesbians. And I think this is very mommy. Um, Like the fact that she is summoning Courtney in an apron with the cake, but then Mm -hmm. also Saturnine in that kind of uniform. And in the bottom, we have this almost like Miami Vice, like, hey, baby, here's a car. Um, I think that's very purposeful (laughs) because it gives us this picture of what Kitty found attractive about her. Not just Mm -hmm. the various guises that Courtney appeared in, but what it was that was sexy to Kitty. And obviously Kitty is into mommies. (laughs) I just thought that was like so deft. I mean, like to accomplish all of that in a panel, um, I think was just fascinating. Oh, I love that, Sam. Yeah. And that's way better than how I put it in terms of the queer awakening is validated, I feel like, in terms of the way that this trauma is presented here. And Mm -hmm. although the experience itself ended up being traumatic, I think it still in a weird way matters that we have the queerness sort of sort of name checked and validated because that still matters. Like it still matters that Kitty realized those things about herself, even though this was a betrayal. And again, that's a really hard tightrope to walk. And I can totally see if somebody reads it differently than that. They're like, no, the fact that it ended up being a betrayal, you know, negates anything positive we can read from it. I think that that would be a valid take as well. And I think it's another one of those things that's going to be really subjective. So I want to be really careful about it. But I also agree with what you were saying about the art too. you know, the long panel on the right side where Kitty's crumpled. Think about how the word balloons are pressing down on her too, right? The word balloons in which she's talking about her nausea and her pain are kind of cascading down upon her in that long blue panel. It is just really well done. There was just something viscerally identifiable in that for me, reading it, definitely. I mean, Andrew and Mav, you obviously talked extensively about the Satter-Courtney relationship on the pod previously. <laughs> sort of what was your reaction to kind of this evolution of it? I really like it based on, on what you and Sam are saying. Um, I think it's a nice metaphorical representation of how we harden ourselves after a breakup. And yeah. I think there's a, a really cool intertext there. This is Wolverine alone, right? The, yeah, the way that yeah. Kitty is, is operating throughout this mansion is just Wolverine alone most famous Wolverine story arguably and I think that makes a lot of sense because Kitty like like Wolverine's kind of the other side of mentorship for Kitty compared to Courtney Um, so so to have her head down this sort of bloodthirsty hardened cynical path I I think that actually adds to the sense of the emotional effect that this breakup and betrayal has had on Kitty as a character yeah I think that makes sense to me too I mean you know again that physical reaction to what has happened right I mean, how did you feel about it, Mav? <laughs> you came in off the top saying you don't like this issue. So. I, I, I mean, I don't, I want to like the issue. I think the issue drops a lot of balls trying to do really complicated stuff. 
That's my problem with it, right? Yeah. As far as issues that I don't like, I will always take one that swings big and misses. So I'm being, I'm trying to be fair to it. Like I, I don't think this is, everybody knows by now, this is not the Promethean Exchange. This is not a nothing <laughs> issue. This is, this is something where I feel like you took a big swing and you struck out. I can acknowledge the taking the swing here. I think that there's troubling stuff because like, I, I do think that so much of that is there, but like even Sam reading this now, having not read all the intervening issues, um, you said, well, you know, clearly, you know, because of it, if, if because there was this physical relationship, except that there wasn't, but it's, it's little things like that. It's like trying to have your cake and eat it too, which is a thing that you can do if you are a talented enough writer, but even under, under the code, right under the comics code davis isn't quite there and there's misses and there's things like with this kitty stuff like i like that kitty is acknowledging the trauma i think there is a very complicated issue of dealing with sexual awakenings that have to do with abuse or trauma you know particularly non-heteronormative ones but just in general even like there is a lot of questions of what do i do if i'm discovering some stuff about myself even ignoring the subterfuge this is an inappropriate relationship between a 30 something year old woman and a 15 year old girl ignoring the fact that she was lying about who she was and she was a nazi and, and kitty is jewish right ignoring all that which is a lot to ignore kitty coming to grips with the fact that wait a minute was i being groomed by an older woman like that would be an interesting story but we don't have time to deal with it properly not because it's a superhero comic but because there's so much going on and it just sort of gets glossed over i yeah, like that she yeah. has the thoughts i think that this issue exists and i mentioned this last issue but i think this one even more so this arc and this issue especially exist as a final i'm clearing the table of claremont baggage because i want to tell my own story and i don't think the sexual trauma of kitty or brian because i think they're both important and i think kitty's is handled better because i think um he's more willing to talk about mistreatment of a not even a woman of a girl than he is of a man <laughs> um and because the relationship is ambiguous for kitty you can always say well at least they never slept together which you know maybe they did or maybe they didn't but like you can at least always say that with kitty and Sadder courtney whereas brian not only was raped on this panel was raped by deception for months now Right. Like that's <laughs> like there's a lot going on that this issue just wants to I just want to get rid of this and be done with it. And it, it's similar to my feelings on I like Kelly Sudakonic a lot as a writer, but I have a lot of problems with the let's let's get rid of the rape of Carol Danvers by just making her forget. I don't like I don't like solutions like that. And that feels like what's happening here. It feels like a like, let's just paint over this as much as possible. You talked about, you know, Janet Van Dyne and, and, Hank, and Hank Pym. I think there should be more to Janet Van Dyne. I don't like when when writers like to ignore the abuse issue because I think that cheapens it. So this feels like that too much to me. But then why are we foregrounding Brian being sexually assaulted in this? I don't know. Trying to resolve it, Thank right? you. I don't know because it, yeah. because it doesn't. And that's why and that's why I'm like, he swings so big. He swings so big here. And he says, let's deal with these issues and then just make them go away. And that's the uncomfortable bit. Right. It's, he did the same mm. thing with with Brian's alcoholism. Right. Like he's like, oh, Brian's not drinking anymore. So I guess we're just going to be OK with everything. And, uh, and like, <laughs> like, like, I, like it's things 
things like that. Like, like he's aware of the issue. He's not the writer who's going to come in and just like ignore continuity that he doesn't care about. Some writers would do that. Davis is going to pay attention to the continuity and then do a mention and then not necessarily deal with it. So I think it's both commendable and it bothers me because it doesn't quite get there in so many ways, right? And also some of the things that I, I don't want to spoil the future. Some of the things that I know he is interested in in the future I'm less interested in. So like, I would rather see this trauma explored. So I like the acknowledgement, but I just feel, I feel like it doesn't make it there. And that's, and so the issue frustrates me. That's my problem with it. Not so much yeah, that I don't yeah. want to try. So do you just it to clarify, me. do you feel like, I think I totally agree with what you're saying in terms of the treatment of what happens to Brian, but do you feel like this mm -hmm. is also true of Kitty? Like you just don't feel like that's treated thoroughly enough. Right. Yes. I mean, I think it's treated better than mm -hmm. Brian's if you're going to force me to, and I don't think you are trying to force me to compare, but like, I think that she acknowledges it a little better than Brian, but I also think Kitty's a more introspectively intelligent character than Brian is. Yeah. So I think there's a mm -hmm. little more to it, but I don't love it for either of them. I, I think that the issue of, oh my God, we've been, the two of us have been sleeping with a Nazi for two years and didn't know it that could be story that that, that carries on forever now but it's not going to and right. and even like okay i'm not the writer of excalibur right but if i'm writing excalibur last issue satter courtney makes it explicit to megan even that yeah i've been fucking your boyfriend right and that's a betrayal right it's also a moment where if you're going to say and by the way i'm also this evil nazi lady not your you know i killed your real girlfriend your your real you know lover and then also i'm sleeping with your 15 year old friend like that's a lot and all those stories could come to come to bear and then if they had to deal with the you know the convolutedness of that of all those relationships while dealing with the trauma that kitty and brian are rightfully feeling that's an interesting story to me but all of it gets dropped it's just this is this is the one time we're ever going to talk about any of it so and you that's know, my and that's I the weirdness of it mm -hmm. posit a theory and i i still totally agree with you that this is not mm -hmm. given <laughs> the mountain of toxicity and trauma that you just described you'd think yeah. that it would take a few <laughs> issues <laughs> yes but i do think that maybe one possible tactic that davis has taken to try to address how it's possible for all this to have happened is at the bottom of the page where we first see Brian laying in bed and Psylocke comes to his consciousness he Brian is explaining that Saturnine escaped by basically having her Amazons pile their bodies up as they were dying in order to get her out and it mm -hmm. drove her insane and so again I wonder if this is supposed to be some kind of shorthand about how like uh, people who experience abuse become abusers like is this his way of being like here's why she's done all these terrible things one she was severely traumatized and two she's been driven insane box checked I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. it's certainly, it's an attempt, it's an attempt to reckon with it. I mean, we get two pages mm. of exposition, but yeah, it's still, it's a little bit uncomfortable because it's like doing exposition about the plot rather than how does Brian feel about this other than angry. Yeah. He's angry. Mm -hmm. I get that he's angry, but is that all that he feels? And maybe that's true to his character. I mean, I have to accept that as a possibility. I mean, we're sliding into it, but like where where I'm going with it is we've got past trauma they're not dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. I think page six is supposed to tell me that Saturnine raped Brian like 20 minutes ago. 
I don't see any other way to read that. It's not like a, like you can read vagueness into the, you can always have the escape clause that, no, this is a code approved comic. She was grooming Kitty as a mother figure, never as a lover. Like you can have that escape clause. I don't buy it. I see the reading, right? I don't see any other way to read this other than the fact that Brian just got raped off page like a moment ago and we're not going to deal with it. And that's weird because like Andrew said, why bring that back up if you're not going to do it? Well, like maybe let's focus in on kind of the portrayal of this scene with Brian. And I think it's really complicated and I found myself thinking about it a lot. But one of the things that I certainly have issues with about it is the way that the scene itself is sexualized. I mean, like Brian is exploited in the imagery here and there's multiple ways to read that. You can be like, well, we have to make that clear because if we don't make it clear that he is exploited, then we don't understand that he's exploited, right? So like that's part of it maybe if I'm being generous but at the same time it's sort of using that as titillation in ways that I find very uncomfortable and certainly I think if this was a female character we would immediately identify that as uncomfortable and I think when it's a male character it is different because of different historical and cultural contexts it just is but at the same time, it makes me uncomfortable in terms of some of the positive things we've said at the past about Davis's sort of inclusive exploitation imagery and his fun exploitation imagery. And yet we see Brian being exploited here and boy, it's not fun. It's really yeah, just, not fun. And yeah. Just for a piece of like visual context, um, there's a really cool juxtaposition set up where Brian is literally chained by the bedsheet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. based on the astral plane image that comes immediately thereafter um so there's mm -hmm. a like a really clear visual symbolic surfacing of the mm -hmm. idea of sexual violence you know what one of the things that really bothered me about again i agree i think it's very clear and it's disturbing in and of itself i am not a fan of sexual violence and i almost never think that it's necessary for storytelling like I am a very hard sell on that but one of the things that I really didn't like about that page is that on the page following the bottom right panel where he's talking about how he'd been deceived and he talks about how his his hormones sort of blinded him and that gave me this feeling of like we're almost victim blaming right that mm. like the fact that he ha he brings that up, the fact that he's being made to say that his hormones, like he's obviously just so horny that he couldn't. I, I found that really gross because it, to me, then reflected back on what had happened the page pre previously. Yeah, that's kind of. So, OK, I, I want to compare it to a couple of things. That's just a recreation of an earlier panel. I don't think in fact, I don't even think it's redrawn. I think it's literally lifted out of Excalibur number. I think it's five or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Uh, like, I think that is the exact same panel. Moreover, I want to compare it to the Kurt Wagner Warlord. I was going to say we should where, compare it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. where um, where Kurt basically is in a hot tub with beautiful naked lady. She clearly wants him. He says, no, no, no. She dumps under the dunks her under the water does something to him and he's like all right yeah that's on then so that's the so like <laughs> like that's what happens in that scene and it's trying to say well i you know he wasn't raped he has agency because he changed right. his mind after saying no three times and you know she turned him on enough right like so fine i guess i don't like it 
but fine i see why it's different and i and i see why the seduction of brian braddock as a willing adult even though he didn't know that it wasn't he didn't know who the person who was seducing him was but like i see where there's a difference between his complicitness in allowing satter courtney to seduce him i don't like it but i i get where there i get where davis is trying to go with it is different than the sexual violence of he is literally granted psychically but it's a world with superpowers he is psychically chained so that his body can be used against his will which is what's happening on the page before in a world with superpowers i want to allow there to be differences there it gets complicated though because i think that the nuance of this is with sexual trauma um and i differ with sam a little bit in in that like i don't mind a story about sexual violence if it's done to sort of talk about sexual violence i'm uncomfortable when it's just ignored like which is what i had this discussion i was teaching a class on you know basically masculinity and how it's portrayed and the in the the question came up one of my students asked well how often are our men even are men even raped and the answer is we don't know we have really bad statistics about it we we're certain it's more than we think you know we say oh well you know only one percent of uh, or i think it's a tenth of percent or something. it's like some insignificant amount of report Reports of rape are by men, but we're positive it's higher than that. We just have no idea how much higher because it's not dealt with. So I so I want to be able to deal with it. I think that this brings it up and then doesn't deal with it. That's the weirdness. It's so frustrating for me because I'm not because I'm like your twin sister is coming to help you here and you're ignoring the fact that the artwork is telling me something horrible just happened to you and we're not going to talk about it. Like that's the weirdness. I, I know it's a code approved comic and and code approved comics don't like to deal with rape to this day, but you chose to write this story. So why? Why are you going to, you know, you could have just had him chained up in a dungeon. You chose yeah. to chain him up in a bed. The thing that I would underline about the difference between this and the warlord issue and we did obviously talk about consent issues there as well is that it depends what sexual violence is being used to do you know in the warlord issue there was commentary about the nature of kurt's fantasies and you know those not necessarily being positive fantasies and sort of the gendered components of that and doing some things to play with gender and in ways that at least made us think about you know, the ways that gender was getting flipped there and what that says about Kurt and how that informs his desires and blah, blah, blah. Like to me, if we're going to read that one as sexual violence, and I think that we certainly can and should, although again, one of the things that makes it a little bit different is that we don't know how much Anjali was manipulating him or not. Whereas in this case, it's extremely, extremely clear that this is against Brian's will. Like she shot him with mind control darts and he is definitely not consenting. So there is some fuzziness there as well. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I think the warlord's story is effective because it has productive yes. fuzziness you mm -hmm. know <laughs> oh, it sounds like i'm doing that in some sort of double entendre way <laughs> but like I, I no, no, I, I, inserting I that into our difficult right conversation right about about sexual abuse <laughs> mm -hmm. um but yeah so like to me if you're gonna use sexual violence it has to do something productive for a character and i just i'm struggling for whether this is doing anything productive for brian other than no, just give him a whole boatload more of trauma because I mean, how does it help us understand him? How does it help us understand the nature of his 
is a real conflict? How does it help us understand him in terms of gender? Maybe it does that. That's like the one thing that I'm like, again, academically, I'm sort of interested in that. You know, what does this tell us about Brian's sexual desires? And I'm interested in like queering Brian and doing all of these things. That is certainly not something we're given here. That is one of those cases where we'd have to bring a lot to this to make that work. Does it do that or is it us? Or is it for academics reading it 20 years later, 30 years later, putting the work in? Because I think that that matters here. The issue seemed weird and creepy before to me. And then, you know, we haven't even gotten to all the body horror issues yet, right? Like, I know, but I, I mean, know. But I mean, it seemed creepy. It, it seemed creepy to me in the 90s. And and I don't think it's gotten better. Like, I don't want to say it aged poorly. I just think it, I just think that that's the nature of what he do, what he did. I think this is a I think it's a big, massive swing and it doesn't quite connect. That's my problem. I don't even know what I want to do either with the fact that like it's Psylocke and Brian in the bed where Brian's just got gotten raped. And like in a previous issue, like Betsy almost got raped by a double of Brian and like, oh boy, just so much. And obviously that's way too much to address in this one page, but that is a whole other continuity context sort of informing some of this as well. There's also been, there's been implications that like that Jamie has committed sexual violence against Betsy. So like yeah. the, it is, it is an issue in their family and these are dark topics. And, and again, I'm okay with a story where you explore these complicated, dark things. It just feels weird to like bring them up and say, yeah, so that happened, you know, <laughs> like that's, and that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel like about this. Like you're like, if you're going to bring up this much darkness and it's a lot, it's a lot in this book. Like, um, like I wonder if, you know, if our listeners think that, you know, I mean, obviously they're listening to the show, so you, you enjoy what we do, but like, I don't think this is us overreading this. I think of all of Excalibur, some really explicit stuff happens in this, in this one. Yeah, yeah. Like non-vague, like a lot of Excalibur, the joke has always been that it's a sexual fantasy. Like even, even the, the Kurt Wagner warlord thing, right? Is it a consent issue or is Kurt having a rape fantasy? And that's a con- that's a complicated question, and you know it's even more complicated because we don't deal with that question with men that often. And like, there's there's a story there that I think that you end up with academics discussing it on a podcast thirty years later. Like I like I get that here it just feels like no, you are explicitly telling me you want me to acknowledge that women can rape men. Page six wants me to do that, and the in the previous pages want me to acknowledge that you know Nazis can rape Jewish teenage girls. Like you're you're asking me to think about these issues and now what and i don't like that emptiness of and now what like even if you were going to tell me i don't have a solution to this but isn't this dark that's at least something but don't just bring it up and then walk away and that's what i feel like this book does well, yeah. And I mean, Kurt Wagner Warlord, I mean, you know, it was basically a whole issue on that story, too. And like right. all set up in the context of which this whole story is about that. I mean, we had other characters in that issue as well. But like, I mean, that's the difference between like we had like 20 pages of that and we have one page of this. Yes. One page of each one. And then we've got to get to the fight to see cool ninja stuff. And I, you know, and I'm all for cool ninja stuff, but like, you know, we're, we're not running out of Excaliburs to do. You could have just done another month. You could have made this a three issue story where you deal with the trauma. It just, it feels weird. Andrew, <laughs> did you have, did you have thoughts on it before we moved to talking about some of the body horror stuff and equally fun conversation? We will yeah, talk I'll, about I'll, Megan's big moment though. We'll get a little positive about that. I'll, I'll just drop a quick theory. Um, Cause Matt mentioned rape fantasy. Um, Modern psychology doesn't believe in that they, they don't right. think it actually exists except as a symptom what they do believe in is force fantasy mm-hmm. which is a fantasy of um, a sexual encounter where you're absolved of the responsibility to say no and i would argue mm-hmm. that's very much what we see in warlord it's no kurt didn't 
sleep with the skeezy villain lady. He just couldn't resist or something like that. Um, and thus you still get to represent an erotic fantasy without diminishing the character. Uh, you could argue that's what they're trying to do with Brian here. Uh, that Are Brian they? got to sleep with the sexy Nazi lady, but it's okay. It's not a betrayal of Megan and it's not a betrayal of his values because she used darts on him. I don't know Maybe. if I want to go there or not, but that that's what a forced fantasy reading would suggest. I would love it if any of our listeners would tell, I mean, because if, if you read it that way, I would, I understand the argument you're making. I just, does anybody see it that way? Well, I mean, I was, again, I can academicize it and be like, well, it's like Captain Britain being seduced by the sexiness of Nazis. And there's a lot of things we could do with that if that was mm. what we were going to focus on in this story in terms of some sort of allegory about something. But <laughs> it's one page in which Brian is like ripped right. off panel. <laughs> right, right. It's not... I mean, again, same, same thing with Kitty, right? Like the fact that she's, uh, I mean, you have to know that she's Jewish. This book doesn't mention it at yeah, all. Yeah. Like, I think it's pretty explicit that like we're doing a Nazi parallel. Like that's like you're, you, you get that, right? But if you don't know Kitty's backstory as a little Jewish girl who has relatives who are Holocaust survivors, right? Like that's part of her backstory, but we're not going to mention that here at all so i don't think it's really fair because i don't know that the book is dealing with it that's there's too much intertextuality there well let's shift to some of the body horror because i want to bring sam back into this conversation to get her insights <laughs> on that um which uh, like at the very least gives us lots to talk about so let's talk about it so sam you mentioned it earlier you know that you found this both interesting and icky and various other things so yeah walk us through it what is sort of the ickiness or the interest of some of the body horror that we get in particular with betsy and megan although other characters are also manipulated as well but i have a feeling it's going to be those two that we're going to end up talking about so yeah i'll, I'll just leave you with an open-ended question sam give us your thoughts so i think um body horror in and of itself sets itself up to invite conversations that deal with both terror and desire, right? Body horror can either express and, and this also is sort of multimedia. You can see this in, obviously, horror films. It's a particular genre of horror films. Um, you obviously can find it in comics. And a lot of people actually um, attribute Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as being sort of the first body horror novel. And what you can see is either there's a sort of demonstration of the feelings of revulsion and horror and terror we get by virtue of being embodied. Um, and I think even like thinking about contemporary sort of slaying, the fact that people walk around calling themselves meat sacks is a small <laughs> form of body horror, right? Like, like it's yeah. this, yeah, it's just like this absolute disgust with the very nature of being embodied. Or you, you then find types of body horror that evoke and explore horror by virtue of the body, by tormenting or manipulating or mutilating the body. With the former, we talked about this the last episode that I visited, this is where you get theorists like Julia Kristeva, who kind of conceptualize our very fleshiness, the fact that we have blood and guts and pus and that we vomit. This is all an aspect of ourselves that evokes this sort of psychological experience of horror, even though it is of us. There's no separating those things 
from us. It is of us. It is us. And yet we also try to constantly get away from it, right? Nobody <laughs> steps in shit and wants to like keep it, right? Well, I'm not going to say nobody. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's not fair. <laughs> but lots of people don't don't enjoy that experience, mm-hmm. right? Or there's a lot of people who have problems with their own blood or, or other people's blood. And this is that exact phenomenon of experiencing the abject um, that Christopher explores. Um, and so I, I think that's really interesting when you think about Jamie's fantasies and it's something that Megan says that sort of tipped me off to this being that same kind of weird mix of both revulsion and desire. When Megan finally starts to sort of break free of Jamie's manipulations, she explains to him um, that she's no longer subject to his whims, that what she looked like before, which I want to come back to because that was the big one for me, the, the shape that she takes is indicative of what he desired. But once she's finally able to free her mind, she no longer has to embody that desire. And so I think it's really interesting to try to understand Jamie's desires when we look at the contortions that the rest of Excalibur is put through. What What is that trying to give us? I mean, yes, everyone keeps calling him a madman, that he's barking mad. If we have time, I'd really like to come back to that because I think there's like a healthy dose of Orientalism going on with Jamie that I think is really yucky. So I'm just curious about like, what what is this saying to us? What How do these characters get manipulated? And then what's that supposed to tell us about the kind of combination of revulsion and desire? I will just say with Megan... I think this is pretty misogynist. She basically looks like a big fat pig. She's kind of covered in warts. She has the mm-hmm. hooves. And the fact that he goes on to call her a bimbo. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's something there. And that may tie into this sort of contentious family history that Jamie has with his siblings and the way that they describe him previously as being a sort of arrogant prick who never got over himself so that, you know, he has this desire to to turn women into a misogynist fantasy, right? I, I think that that's hard to contest when you look at what happens to Megan. But yeah, that's where I that's where I kind of got into like what I was trying to think through when I was looking at what happened. I don't think it's as simple as like reality shifting. I think that when you think about this as body horror, you have to confront that there's a kind of mix of things going on, not just revulsion, right? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking a lot about what we're supposed to take away from it as readers, you know, bringing our own cultural context to it and everything. And one of the things that I found very discomforting about the body horror here is the way that so-called horrificness, you know, so-called disgusting female bodies are linked to reality, right? You know, being disgusting is being fat. You know, being disgusting is having limbs that somewhat uncomfortably resemble certain real life conditions like muscular dystrophy or something like that. And that is effective in the sense that it's visceral, you know, like comparing what happens to their bodies to something from reality makes these transformations more visceral, I think. 
but at the same time, it makes them much more uncomfortable to me. And I worried about to what degree this was reinscribing cultural prejudices we already have rather than reckoning with them in any meaningful way. Because, you know, just to underline that the transformations in particular that Betsy and Megan are put through, you know, as fantastical as they are, there are certain elements of real world referent there that are not present for, say, Kurt's transformation. Kurt just becomes mm. like really with a big stretchy neck, you know, like, I mean, that's not like anything from real reality whereas other elements of their transformations are and I didn't know what to do with that honestly I find these images very uncomfortable and yeah I did a lot of thinking about why I found them uncomfortable and those are some of my thoughts about it but Andrew and Mav what were some of your reactions to some of this imagery did you find this productive body horror or not Okay, so, so again, coming back to what Matt was saying about um, some big swings, I think there is an interesting attempt here in terms of trying to set up Jamie's misogyny specifically in a way for Megan to overcome it in keeping with her journey that we've charted yeah, yeah. You know, for so many episodes. So I, I think the idea that, that Jamie, a non-misogynist, would view Megan as a pig, which is cattle, something dominated and controlled, I think that makes sense with who he is hard to look at, hard to watch, and certainly indulged by the illustration more than I would like. But setting up Megan's violent pushback against that, to me, that kind of worked, except again, I have problems with the form that Megan's natural state takes in terms of what it says about her gender expression. So I can kind of see how we're trying to do something, but I mean, as with Math um, earlier, I just don't think it's it's executed the way it needs to be executed to work. I think it's a delicate thread to you know paraphrase Jamie, uh, and, and he he doesn't pull <laughs> off. Yeah, I mean, with the Megan thing, something I wanted to come back to with her transformation was that it is complicated. You know, her transforming into this hyper feminine form because that can be an aspirational fantasy depending on how you're approaching it right you know particularly in terms of it being something like a trans fantasy you know of becoming your ideal self that is certainly something positive that we could read into sort of that embodiment of Megan's but for me personally just the way it plays out here it sort of gets me back to that question of like does she need a true form and again this is me rewriting the comic and I know we shouldn't do that or whatever but <laughs> it just in this particular moment it just I kept coming back to how much more effective it might be if she didn't have a true form in this moment you know Jamie yeah. is trying to manipulate her form but she's like I don't have a form for you to manipulate you know like I just that's what I wanted and I wanted it so mm -hmm. badly and I felt like it was right there but instead it's like no I'm not ugly I'm super hot ha 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 and it's like oh, oh and exactly. I, mean, I guess like this small attempt at it right I mean that it also really bothered me but I thought it the way that her face is illustrated the first page when she finally shakes him off it is less human right she does start to look a bit more monstrous in the best sense um she has this sort of face that is more like i, I don't want to say demonic because that's not i don't mean to use that word in, in a connotation of like bad but I, literally she's got these like great eyes and it's a long sharp face you get to see her ears more clearly and I think especially when you see her in profile right there's something almost lizardy about that face which is awesome because to me I was like aha if this is what happens when she gets back to herself and is not beholden to somebody else's whims this is how she desires to be this is more interesting but then mm -hmm. when Brian grabs her throat her face transforms and so I keep reading this like if if she shapeshifts because she's empathic, 
I find this very disappointing, right? Well, yeah, that, she... that moment with Brian, too. I mean, I kept thinking, like, well, she saved herself from being killed by becoming what he desires. And that was actually right, kind of creepy. Exactly. Which her face looks a lot like Courtney's. Um, and so that was another thing that I just kind of thought, oh, this is so sad where we have this moment. I think Megan really has this potential and it just it goes away it's a f- almost immediately. So, yeah, I guess this is the flaw in the in the Megan's true form story that like when when it was first revealed, um, I had a similar reaction to it that Sam's having now. Megan's got a true form that is this weird eight foot tall elven lady. That's what that's what she is. And, you know, fine. I mean, you you draw her however you want to. But for brand recognition reasons, she has to default back to this classic, beautiful five foot nine lady that is she the storyline says here oh i you know i am an empath i or i am a shapeshifter i can look like whatever i want i am a changeling you cannot control me so i will be my true self except when my boyfriend's here because now i want to be what he wants me to be and Mm -hmm. that's and it's a it's a weirdness because again megan's i mean you said she looks like courtney in storyline she basically just made herself brian's perfect match that's like what she did back in the day so she really is she's being girly brian she's being the perfect the person that would look good having sex with him that's literally what happened when she when she chose this form in the first place because she was an even more monstrous being at first and then she was like oh well i want to be with this dude so i will look like what he would want me to do and even when she discovers that she doesn't have to anymore her reasoning for keeping this form is well it's the one that i'm comfortable in now but like is it really because you were in monster lady form for the form yeah for the first 17 years of your life and then like you spent the last two being in cute girlfriend form so why are you more comfortable in the in the cute girlfriend form just because i don't know because brian wouldn't sleep with you as a werewolf that's why you know oh yeah i am i'm yeah she does say it yeah she she yeah she basically tells him would you love me if i look like this and no no he did not yeah exactly (laughs) he does not love you and that's the answer no he would not yeah i'm i'm totally team give megan her fur back i I said it before i'll say it again (laughs) it's cold in england (laughs) well it's just i feel so bad for how hard we're going on this issue but it's just there's a lot of uncomfortable stuff in this issue and i just i keep i keep looking at the bottom of page 21 where megan shifts into you know her conventional megan appearance and then brian Mm -hmm. is unable to hit her because of that and i'm like oh that's so like creepy in the context of like some of the abusive aspects of the relationship because we know she's taken this shape in part in response to these desires because that's how her powers work so she has to save herself by becoming what he desires and that puts a real negative spin on some of those abusive aspects of their relationship like the more i think about this issue i'm just like the fact that brian and Megan are together after this this should have been when they split up like at least for a while you know until we figure some of this shit out because this does not get dealt with (laughs) you know because I mean this level of betrayal and the things that this should have made them realize about themselves I don't know that that's reconcilable you know that's what counseling's for but that doesn't happen yeah (laughs) yeah It's, well, they go on kind of know. like a, a seaside vacation is what happens. But, so we'll talk about that in future issues. Yeah. But um, okay, if I can say something like 
let's talk about something potentially more positive, which is like our mileage on Megan's solution to this problem. And she resorts to violence, mm -hmm. right? She resorts to punching Jamie because violence is the only thing that he understands. And I was wondering about our mileage about that. It was like one of many things in this issue that I had mixed feelings about. I sort of like the visualization of this. And this is a case where Megan in her quote unquote true form sort of works for me because it's a juxtaposition of how we expect that type of body to behave versus how it's actually behaving, which is violently and asserting power over this misogynist villain. So there's that kind of juxtaposition of elements that is potentially interesting here. But I mean, how did the rest of you feel about it? I'll come to you for it, Andrew, because I, I always love your readings of Megan. But did you find it productive for her to resort ultimately to just physical hand to hand violence here? I kind of do because of the context, because because the yeah. idea, I mean, she, she has the beautiful line that, you know, words are just small noises that hide the truth. Uh, and the idea that, you know, I'm I'm not an idiot. You just think I'm an idiot because that's all you value. But I think the point is, like we, we've talked about this before, Jamie believes he's in a dream, right? So that's the, that's the fear. That's the symbolism of privilege. Someone who has no accountability or consequence because they don't understand the concept. Uh, that's how Jamie walks through life. So having her inflict pain upon him, physical, real pain, is a way to sort of reflect what he's doing back at him to make him suddenly aware, you know, this is what you're doing to other people, uh, but also to just snap him out of this dream state and establish that there are real consequences and the consequences are, I'm going to kick your ass. I, I like that for Megan. I, I know it's kind of problematic for the, the broader narrative and the way that violence plays out in this issue. But I think, again, as a way to take that violence and reflect it back upon Jamie, it's kind of effective. Yeah, and so much of this issue is a rape revenge in a lot of ways, you know, in mm. terms of we talked about the depth of the misogynistic violence in the previous issue. And a lot of this issue is women taking their power back. And again, I think there's lots of conversations that we've been having throughout this episode about how effective we think that is considering the amount of misogynistic abuse the women are graphically put through, <laughs> like in order to enact this revenge. And that's one of the issues I have with it. But yeah, I mean, Megan doing this violence in her true form, in her quote unquote, more traditionally beautiful form is effective if we're going to read that context of like, you underestimate me and think I'm a bimbo because I look like this, but actually I'm powerful and yada, 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 which is like, you know, a tropey message, but it works for me on a basic level in the scene. I will say that. I also wonder when we have these discussions and, you know, about whether female characters should be violent, especially the female characters that we want to read as feminists to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder what else we think they're supposed to do. Yeah, I know. Right? I know. Because there's a practical element to this that she's already been put under some kind of restraint, psychically, physically changed her form. I mean, she's been doing what she had to do to break free of that, right? But it was clear that if she'd been able to do it any sooner, she would have. And I, I don't really understand what we think is the alternative. And I get a little itchy about the idea of female character who has framed as being uneducated at best, who is also emphasized as being empathic, which is, again, a kind of very stereotypical characteristic to assign to female characters. And and then what do we want from her? That she's the one that solves everything through warm feeling conversation? To me, I'm not sure that that actually helps us if it just ends up sedimenting the stereotype of her not being logical or capable of using 
intelligence and having to rely on empathic ability, which is something we assume is more inherently natural for women. And she's done all this even after being subjective to incredible, as you said, Anna, incredible misogynistic violence. I don't know that I would feel any better about that result, you know? So I don't really know, like, it's not that it never happens, but I feel like these conversations happen less when we're talking about male characters. And so I just, it makes me bristle a little. And and I wonder, like, what is it that we are asking of our female characters when, as Andrew said, we have them this in this particular context? What do we actually think would be a good solution if we're not comfortable with the violence? I, uh... I have an answer to that. I, okay. <laughs> it's similar to what, and, 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 I, and I don't know that it's an answer. Oh God, I'm going to lose some of our listeners I'm gonna, or at least they're going to hate me, not you guys. So, okay. I agree with everything that you just said. I literally make that point in my dissertation. The currency of the superhero narrative is violence. That's right. what it is. The way that you spend your way, you don't use money. You manipulate this world by your ability to punch things. That's what superhero comics are. You can like that or you can hate it. That's what they are. Okay, we start there. Now, there are comics that disrupt this and do, you know, innovative things. You know, maybe Reed Richards will just like think his way out of a problem. Right? It does happen, right? But the base <laughs> currency, you presume that you solve problems by punching a problem hard enough and it goes away. That's what superhero narratives are. That's the fantasy. That is a very gendered male solution. It is, you know, the you know, I can be toughest. I can be the mightiest. I can be whatever. That's what I will be. It's the Superman solution. I'll just punch it hard enough. It will go away. And yeah, people want there to be, well, you know, could we have done this in a feminine way? What you get is Squirrel Girl, which a lot of people love. I'm not so much a fan, but I, if you, if you like Squirrel Girl, if you like Squirrel Girl, (laughs) fine. But like Squirrel Girl was innovative in the 2000 teens because people were like, oh my God, here's this amazing comic where she doesn't punch people. And she was exactly what Sam's describing. Like, I mean, she's not dumb, but she's kind of treated as dumb because she's, you know, because she doesn't like to punch stuff, right? Like that's the like the thing she's she's treated as simple-minded, but she's really just silly. It, she's treated as naive because she doesn't believe in just, you know, punching her way through problems in the world. But like, that's what I think people are asking for. And I don't think Megan needs to be that way because I think the better story is that you can have empathy powers and still punch stuff if you want to. Like, it's kind of a, not that I think Megan's always written the best, particularly the last several years. Um, (laughs) But, but, but I do think that I, I think that conceptually it should not have to be a case where the idea of being feminine means rejecting the nature of what superhero comics are. Now, if you want to reject the nature of what superhero comics are as a boy or as a girl or as a non-binary person, that's fine. I think the assumption that Megan should because she's female is where the problem comes. And I think that that assumption is there, even in her language here. You just think that I'm a bimbo because I'm pretty. That's basically what she's saying. And again, swing and a miss, but um, foul tip here. <laughs> okay. Like I think it, I think it sort of connects, right? <laughs> like it's like, I, like, I think that he's trying here to say, look, just because I'm pretty, that doesn't mean I can't kick your ass and I'm going to do that right now. 
And yeah. Then, that's the fulfillment of a promise that, again, we saw in Excalibur number three, where it's implied right. she's the physical equal of the juggernaut. Juggernaut, a yes. physical being. And she, you know, like, so the thing is, if Brian had chosen to punch her under Saturnine's control, you know, she probably would have actually been fine. <laughs> she's, like, really <laughs> tough, you know, she but, like, the, but like the, they want to tell the lesson still that, but love can break you out of your mind control. Like, that's the, that's the lesson you want, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah blah exactly it's kind of this is such an interesting conversation because it gets back to fundamental questions about you know one of the well, almost certainly the most famous female superhero which is wonder woman superman does just get to punch problems wonder woman punches problems and also reforms people she's got to do both i mean that's part of the obligation of being a feminist superhero going back to wonder woman right and you know when gloria steinem first did some of her writing about wonder woman she emphasized that as one of the super revolutionary things about the character the fact that she does reform people the fact that her number one weapon is a lasso of truth that forces people to recognize their own evil and <laughs> like in theory become better people you know she's a superhero that fights with love and there is so so much that's gender essentialist about it and so much that's really powerful about it too and it's really mm -hmm. difficult and i absolutely think it's unfair that female superheroes have to take on that additional burden and i don't have like a little pat answer for that i think it interests me a lot and i totally get where sam's coming from that like well why shouldn't we react to violence with violence when that violence is earned and we absolutely yeah. should and that and it totally yeah. is here yeah no, of course no of apology course. here <laughs> of course i will say though i mean i think just as long as everyone else is comfortable maybe one of the distinctions that it's helpful to make and at least i try in my book because i have to because as mav said they're superhero comics so there is violence whether i want it to be there or not so i think there might be a distinction between types of violence and i realize that yeah, this might yeah. sound like I'm hedging, but I kind of think that it's important to actually think through what we mean by or what we think violence is. So defensive violence surely has to be understood differently than, you know, unprovoked violence. And I think that there's, again, whether or not it actually connects in this comic, I think there's some attempt at, at thinking through different types of violence. So I don't know, does everyone want to talk about the banana thing? Yeah, I was going to move to that <laughs> next. And I, I think that you're absolutely right, Sam, that we are having sort of a conversation about different types of violence on purpose in this issue. I mean, we go back to issue number 55 and we had Kurt breaking the boards and Kitty saying, you usually use defensive violence and you're using offensive violence here. So that's a change for you. What's going on? So we do have that sign posted a little bit, but yeah, let's talk about the Psylocke thing. So we got a Crocodile Dundee reference thrown in here in the mid of all of this disturbing violence, which is like, whatever, let's just chalk that up to some fun jar about Ending, whatever uh yeah well do you want do you want it was topical so you want to talk about it sam i mean we get betsy with her very phallic psychic knife driving that into jamie's skull i mean what do you do with that if i'm being generous the the fact that jamie tries to attack with a banana and the the crocodile dundee joke that's not a knife this is a knife i think there's an attempt here to mix the absurd with something a bit more serious which to me seems to be the message that masculinist violence 
is the only type that's going to be effective in the end. Megan obviously at some point tries to start defending herself and in order to defend her friends she inflicts greater violence and then you know she gets knocked out by her own boyfriend and then almost choked out blah blah. <laughs> but I think that these these panels about using phalluses to like win the day again if I'm being generous I would say that maybe Davis is trying to put poke fun at that that it's tra- we are supposed to see this as absurd because it's the madman who initiates it there's a joke being told if I'm not being as generous then yeah I have some real questions about the fact that it's phallic violence that actually brings this to a close and especially the fact that Brian then like literally penetrates a ship at some point, you know, that to try to bring it down. So like, is it a, an effective sort of critique or does this just end up reinforcing the, the very type of violence that Mav is sort of suggesting is at the baseline of, of the genre? Yeah, I had a lot of feelings about that too, Sam. And it does get us back to that question of like, what's fair? You know, Psylocke is taking revenge on Jamie in a way that's pretty dark unjustified given everything that she just went through Mm -hmm. and yet I had a lot of thoughts and feelings about the reductiveness of okay well phallic violence caused so much of this and phallic violence is supposedly the solution to all of this Mm -hmm. and aren't there Mm -hmm. any other solutions right surely there's some something in the middle (laughs) I mean it is also it's it's again bringing back the yucky if as was suggested previously there is the implication that sexual abuse happened amongst the siblings Seeing Psylocke use a phallus, it just, again, I think kind of perpetuates this idea that sexual abuse necessarily begets more. And I I think that's icky. If you've not dealt with it, it's not, in fact, kind of unpacked at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do we want to move to some kind of final thoughts? I mean, I feel like there's so much more that we can actually talk about in this issue, but um, let's give everybody a chance to, to do one. Uh, I'll start with you, Mav. Uh, final thought from this issue, something that we, that we didn't get to talk about that you want to mention before we wrap things up. Alas for Nigel, I knew him, Horatio. Nigel gets killed in this, ish- this issue. We didn't even talk about it. Nope. <laughs> um... <laughs> So I, I want to return you to the the first couple of episodes of our show where <laughs> where we talked about the misogyny of the Nigel character and like how, whether he was interesting or not. And if you go back, the three of us, we are like, well, you know, some stuff will happen that it may be interesting. I remember distinctly saying, I don't know that it goes anywhere. Here's it not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like. It's just like, I mean, Nigel had a very troubled, complicated, you know, he was a character at one point that, like, you loved to hate. And then, you know, because of, like, the, oh, look, there's Rachel, like, dumping tarred feathers on him again. (laughs) You know, that was neat. And then he becomes this unlikely tool of the Nazis, of the space Nazis. And, okay, I guess you're dead. And now it's just, oh, he's dead now. Okay, I guess we don't have to deal with him anymore. I don't know. We just gotta get every layer of sort of his, you know, gender confusion and sexual sexual stuff in here. I mean, he gets like killed because Courtney points out, wouldn't you rather up me be on top? And he's like, Oh god, you're right. And then he gets stabbed like with another phallic weapon, right? So it's like that's present, but it's like, okay, it doesn't go anywhere other than to be like, hey, this guy's kinky, eh? Well, after pointing out that he's genderqueer because he gets turned into Vixen earlier. I mean, like, it's a last gasp for them. And again, this is another one of those big swings and nothing happening, right? I said, okay, 
Nigel's dead now. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. There's nothing to even say about it because I'm not doing a bit. The book doesn't care that he's dead. It's just like, can we just get rid of him finally and tie up this loose end? And like, I, I don't really see why Saturnine kills him other than the fact that, oh, are you still in the story? Like she literally kills him out of the story to be done with him. It's not emotional. It's not like a, oh, and she's even more evil because she could have killed him forever ago. She just decides to kill her henchmen just so that we don't have to deal with that storyline anymore and that's that's how i feel about it yeah so I, I don't really I, have anything to expand i was so confident that you weren't going to bring it up that i had no backup final thought like i, I, wow. I knowing knowing full well that like that this was we were going to get the final thoughts and i was like and and i was like i bet you like i i knew that no one was even going to mention him during the entire episode if i didn't i would just be able to use it as my final thought so that's my final thought nigel's dead <laughs> <laughs> That's how confident I was. Andrew, any final thoughts from you? Uh, I think coming into this issue, I was kind of feeling um, sort of backwardly nostalgic in a bad way. Uh, we've talked about Davis's progression as a writer. He, he wrote an issue of Captain Britain in which Psylocke is badly fridged by Slaymaster. Um, I hate it so, so much. I think it's the worst example of fridging, more so than the killing joke, more so than Kyle Rayner's girlfriend. And, and I, I've always kind of had that in the back of my head whenever I read Alan Davis. So, so when he does an issue like this with the kind of, again, violent misogyny, I feel like this is a major step backward for him. Um, and I don't know, it just that looming shadow colored my dislike of what he does in this issue. Yeah, I think that's very fair. If I can put a, a slightly more positive spin on it, it's that I enjoyed having this conversation with y'all about it a lot because <laughs> it, helped me, it helped me work through a lot of my complicated feelings and I feel like that's kind of the best that we can do with a densely problematic issue such as this one. But um, I will give you the final word on it, Sam, if you would like. Anything that you want to emphasize or touch on before we leave this very weird, very complicated issue behind? Um, well, I mean, I mentioned it very briefly and I won't go into it in any detail because we are out of time. But I, not to say that I'm uh, a fan of Jamie, but I think he's also treated in really problematic ways. Oh, yeah. um, I think it's highly orientalist. And mm -hmm. I think that it's interesting that he's, in terms of his um, embodiment, I think he's actually feminized in certain ways. And so it's interesting mm -hmm. then that it's phallic violence that kind of puts him out in the end. So I think there's a lot of extra kind of um, disturbing kind of discussion to be had around that character and his stylization. But maybe for some other some other time when we've all had a blast <laughs> of feel good. Um, and I will just say, like, I've so enjoyed this. Like, I, I enjoyed the first time. And for anybody who's kind of new to the podcast or new to the book, it's very fun to read and it's I think there's not a single issue that doesn't have something to talk about which is indicative of a good book overall <laughs> I mean there's definitely some obvious strikeouts but I think the fact that we can have these conversations um, means there's, something yeah there's always something to talk about in this book that is absolutely true <laughs> Marilyn if only you're at my side my old friend to give me courage. There are no war tricks that will fool Mordred and Morgana. More than I ever did, I need you now. Where are you, Merlin? If only you could. See me, wield Excalibur, once more. 
I think we will wrap things up there. We managed to end on a mostly positive note. Um, Sam, thank you so, so dearly for joining us. I'm so happy to have your voice on this particular comic book. Um, before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of all of the amazing things that you get up to. So let's do that now. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you and what work of yours should they be checking out or looking out for? So I'm on Twitter at S underscore Langsdale. My website is samlangsdale.com um, and I, I will update it now that I've just advertised it. <laughs> um, I think in terms of upcoming things, it's going to be quite a while before any of it appears. So I would point people back towards my chapter in Anna's edited volume Super Sex. I'm very proud of that. Um, I also wrote a chapter about the evolution of Carol Danvers from comics to film for the in the Rutledge um, Gender and Sexuality in Comics series. Awesome. And yeah, definitely your anthology Monstrous Women. And you and I both have stuff about queer themes and Jack Kirby comics in the pipeline. So... That's exciting. Thank you so much again, Sam. I was so grateful to get your perspective. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm very thrilled to be a part of this. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Marvel Comics Presents number 101 to 108, Male Bonding, starring Nightcrawler and Wolverine, and circuses, and hugs, and horseback riding under the moon, and monsters, and Gene Colin art. We'll be covering Excalibur 57 the following week, but we have to take this jaunt to Germany first. I make the schedules and I decide. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another twisted conversation. Thank you. Sam for helping us untangle things. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Alright, I got a cat climbing on me, and I gotta go do all this stuff, so <laughs> good let's luck, do that. Anna. Yeah.